0: Oh, well, church family, it is so good to be with you this morning, and I am really excited uh, about the Word of God that we get to look at today. I am most, most Sundays. Uh, sometimes I come with fear and trepidation because I don't always know the fullness of what God's going to do through it, but I believe this is a message that um, will minister to many, many hearts this morning because it's been ministering uh, to my own. Uh, so it's been two weeks uh, since I was able to go on the uh, high school uh, trip with our church. That was a lot of fun. I have high schoolers myself. And so went on the camp experience with them a few weeks ago. It was a unique kind of camp experience because we went um, to a place that's more of like an adventure camp. So I think I mentioned this. There was rock climbing one day, canyoneering another day, which if you don't know what that is, it's just it's a lot of fun. You're walking through canyons, swimming through canyons. Um, it was great experience. But then it culminated with whitewater rafting on the very last day. And uh, if you haven't done whitewater rafting, I've been a couple of times, it is a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoy it. It's just an experience. But on this trip, our guide did something before we actually got into the boats and into the water. The guide took the time to walk through with us what it was that we would be experiencing while we were on the river. <clears throat> you know, things to to look out for, things to be aware of, when when to row, when not to row. And and so, you know, doing the wise thing, letting us know what was going to to happen and how to respond. Um, But then, as we actually got on the river, it wasn't until we got close to our very first rapid that the guide then slowed the boat down and began to explain to us in greater detail what was about to happen. And so the guide talked us through we're going to come, and it was class three rapid, so it wasn't overly dangerous, but enough that people have drowned in that situation. In fact, that's what the guide said. The guide said, here's the, the range of what you might experience as we go through this rapid. And that was everything from just getting wet to falling in the water to potentially drowning. And you're like, no wonder you waited to tell us all of this till we were on the river and not when we were on the land, because some people would have maybe gotten out. But we, we are... They're on the river, and the guide's explaining what we're about to experience and saying, like, if you do fall in on this rapid, swim this direction. Don't do this, do this. And, and just literally walked us through even how the rapid was going to, to move. And, and the guide did that because the guide wanted us to be what? Prepared. Because if the guide hadn't given us the information including the information that some people have drowned, um, we might come into that rapid, not expecting the drop, not expecting the boat to move in this direction or that direction, and we would what? We'd panic. We might respond incorrectly, and in responding incorrectly, guess what? Find ourselves in greater danger than we would have otherwise. So the guide was doing a very wise and a good thing telling us this is what you can expect to have happen so that we could be prepared. And I was so grateful because as we went through the rapid, the first one in particular, I was on the right side of, of the boat and we got turned a little sideways. And so I literally, the boat was like this at one point and I see this rushing wave coming this way. And he had said, tuck your foot in, tuck your... And I was, and I was tucked in. So I was good. Meanwhile, my head is like by this, by this water. So it was exciting, but I was okay. Now, I share that with you because today... We're coming to a psalm, Psalm 42 and 43. In fact, I want to invite you to turn there in your Bibles. In Psalm 42 and 43, it's supposed to be taken as one psalm, as you'll see in just a moment. This psalm is a psalm that serves for us like that guide did for us on the water. It serves to instruct us and to share with us about an experience that you and I might or might not yet have experienced But he gives it to us so that we would be prepared and not surprised, so that we wouldn't panic, and so that ultimately we wouldn't create more danger for ourselves than is necessary. And the reason why I can say with great confidence that the psalm was written to instruct us is because look at how the psalm begins. It has a heading, as many of the psalms do, and the heading says, To the Choir Master which makes sense because psalms were songs that were ultimately intended to be sung by God's people. A mascal of the sons of Korah. Two quick things about that. We learned about the word mascal a few um, psalms ago. Mascal simply means to instruct. So right here in the notes is this indication to us that what you're about to read is a song that's to be sung intended to give instruction to the people of God. Very clearly, it's to be read in that way. So we know that it's a, a psalm that's intended to instruct us. It's, it's intended to serve like a guide. Because I can tell you, I, I've had experiences in life where I was like working on a project. And something happened in the midst of the project. And the person that was leading the project came back later and was like, oh yeah, I forgot to tell you that that could happen. Have you ever had that experience? And you're like, why didn't you tell? That would have saved me a lot of anxiety or worry. And so the psalmist is coming saying, listen, there can be something in your life that you might experience. I want to instruct you in how to get through that. Just one other quick note. It says, oh, you can leave it up there because I want them to see this. It says it's from the sons of Korah. And this is another little uh, footnote to make uh, you aware of. This is one of the first psalms that's not being written by David. And it's written by these guys, the sons of Korah. Who are they? Broadly speaking, at that time in the History of Israel: The sons of Korah were the people who played the instruments and led the people of God in worship. Some people are like, you know, why do we have a worship band? Well, they had worship bands in the temple. All right, Uh, they, they there were people who played instruments who led the people in song, and that's what the sons of Korah did. One interesting thing about their family history that could be a sermon in and of itself is Korah, who they are distant relatives of. If you know the story of Korah. He was someone who rebelled against Moses in the wilderness, and God ultimately destroyed him, his wife and his family. He obviously left a remnant because some of his sons were still around all these years later. But he rebelled against God. <clears throat> he was destroyed. But now look at what's happening. His sons are literally leading in worship. <coughs> for a moment, hold on) Quinn, I'm good. Thank you. Um, so you have the sons of Korah, and here they are leading in worship, and it tells us something, church. It tells us no matter who your father is, no matter your family history, no matter if they had been rebellious, God can still use you. Can I get an amen to that? I guess really, it's powerful. And I, I don't know if God just gives us an indication just for that reason, but, but I think it's of note. Oh, I have a tickle. It's, it's there. <laughs> it's not going away. <coughs> huh? All right, we'll give it a go. Here we go. All right. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read this psalm in its entirety. And I keep saying this psalm because 42 and 43 go together. And so let me read it and then let's see what the lesson is that God has for us. It starts, as a deer pants for flowing streams, soul pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. I'd go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you (coughs) from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, and Mount Mizir. Okay, I'm going to pause here. (coughs) Does somebody have a piece of gum that I could just borrow? Oh, he's giving me more. I'm gonna take, Oh, see, this is going to help the gum. My mom said never to speak with gum in your mouth. Well, if you want to hear the rest of this message, I'm going to need some gum. Thank you, Leslie. That helps. I can, all right, there we go. <clears throat> We're family here, so we can do these things. Kind of kills the moment. Let's get back into it. He says, verse 6, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of... Jordan, of Hermon, and Mount Mesir. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my Adversaries, taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning about because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then, then I'll go to the altar of God. So, God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a liar. Oh, God, my God, why are you downcast O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. As I began, I said that this psalm was intended to instruct. But what's it looking to instruct us in? What is it that he wants to communicate? What is it that God wants to teach his people? And sometimes I'll preach a message and there's like a dual audience. There is almost every time that I, that I preach, and even today there, there will be that. And by dual audience, I mean I'm preaching to those of you who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then I'm also preaching to those of you that might think as you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you really don't, and maybe, maybe there's a tri-audience, and there's obviously those who really don't know Him as Savior. This message, though, the primary um, direction of it is for the believer. It's for the person who's put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you want to understand that message, you must understand verse 1. Look back at verse 1 with me. The psalm begins with some very famous words. As a deer pants for flowing streams, soul pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, if you grew up in the church, the words that are familiar to you are those first words. In fact, if you grew up in the church in the 80s and 90s, you sang the contemporary song. And yes, here is how it goes. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. Right? Do you know that song, Am I the Only One? No, you know it. That was a very famous contemporary Christian song. And overall, the song uses words from the scriptures to make the song. The problem, though, with that song is that the way that the words are used in the contemporary song is the exact opposite of how the psalmist is using the words here. When you sing the song, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, it's sung as a song of worship. It's like the, the, we're supposed to sing it as a way of saying, God, I love you so much, just as a, just as a deer thirst for water, I just, I long for you, I want You. The psalmist, though, is coming and saying, that's not my situation. That's not what I'm saying when I say these words. See, deer aren't stupid creatures. The Hebrew word here that says that the deer pants for water is a word that indicates a deep and abiding thirst. Now, obvious question, when do you thirst for water? When you have it or when you don't have it? All right, let's try it one more time. When do you thirst for water? When you have it or when you don't have it? When you don't have it. <clears throat> and so the psalmist is describing a deer coming to a stream that normally provides water, but the water's not there. That's why he's thirsty. The panting that he's talking about is not the deer saying, you know what, I'm getting a little thirsty, I'm a little parched. It's saying, no, he's already at the point where he is devastated by a lack of of liquid. He's going to the stream, and the water's not there, so he's panting. He's in trouble. The psalmist is saying, that's how my soul feels right now in relationship to God. He literally says it. Look at how it says, so my soul pants for you, O God. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He's saying, God's not with me right now is what it feels like. I feel empty inside. Spiritually, I'm dry. What the psalmist is describing here is spiritual depression. He is in a season of spiritual depression. It's not that he does not believe in God. It's not that he doesn't love God. It's not that he doesn't trust God. He's saying if it were based on my feelings, it feels like, God, you're not there. And so in your notes, if you're taking it, I'm defining spiritual depression this morning as seasons in life when God feels distant. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had a season in your life where the reality of God's presence, it just doesn't hit you? You just don't feel it. You believe in him, but you have memories of days where your passion for him, your longing for him. It, it, it's just not there anymore. And, and so what we have here is the psalmist coming and he's saying, "I'm in one of those seasons." Now remember, this is a psalm of instruction, right? And so he's telling us about his situation and what he's feeling, because here's the very first point that we need to be aware of. He's letting us know God's people you and me can experience seasons of spiritual depression. Seasons where God feels distant from you. Not that he is. The key word here is feels. It just, it just is a dryness in the soul. And the psalmist goes out of his way. Thank you. Oh, man, they're just, I'm all hooked up this morning. <clears throat> they don't want me to do it again. The psalmist is coming to us this morning, and he's saying very clearly in the rest of the psalm, guess what? It's not because of anything that he did. You need to see this. The psalmist makes it abundantly clear that God doesn't feel distant from him because he sinned in some way. There are psalms where the psalmist calls out and is like, yo, look, I've sinned. I've done what is wrong in the eyes of God. We got a couple of psalms from David where he's like, God, you feel far away from me. I feel burdened in my soul as it relates to you. And I know it's because of my sin. In this psalm, we don't see that happening. And so church, I'm wondering this morning, do we have a category for experiencing in the Christian life? Although you've been saved and you know the love of Jesus, you've experienced his redemption, do we have a category where the person who both knows and loves God, can still at times feel, feel distant from him. Do you have a category for that? This psalm is saying you need to. You need to have a category for that because it can happen. It can be experienced by you and it can be experienced by me. Even some of you here this morning might be experiencing it, and we need to be aware of it because sometimes it's not because of anything that you've actually done. In fact, the rest of the psalm is going to tell us that often there's these outside circumstances that do it. But I'm hitting on this point. I'm I'm nailing this point on the head because if you're a newer Christian, we sometimes don't talk to newer Christians about this reality. When you first get saved and you realize you're forgiven of your sins, that there's a God who loves you and has made you part of his family, <clears throat> there's an experience of your nearness to Him that is such a sweet and treasured thing. But often we don't tell new Christians that, you know, that experience, and at least how you feel emotionally, that might not always last. And so we do a disservice to Christians sometimes by saying like, no, no, you always got to be on this emotional high, you and Jesus. There always has to be this ecstatic experience with, with you and God. You should never feel and have these times where that you're just not firing on all cylinders, is it? as it connects to him. The psalmist comes and says, be careful, don't say that. That's not what it means because we live in a fallen world and sometimes situations and things even beyond us can cause this. And look, this isn't just a psalmist that says it. Just look at the life of Moses. Look at the life of the prophets. Look at David. Look at Paul. Time doesn't allow us to go into their lives and to look at those times where they're going through these times. But church, God's people can experience seasons of spiritual depression. And by knowing that, one of the things that it does for us, I'll tell you right now, is it allows us to better minister to others. We're going to talk about how that can be. But the psalmist just doesn't come and say, all right, this is something that you can experience. He also begins to explain why. Why sometimes seasons of spiritual depression come upon us. And the reason that he gives throughout the psalm is that seasons of spiritual depression can have many different causes. We live in a fallen world, and you feeling distant from God isn't necessarily because you did anything wrong. In fact, the psalmist gives at least four different examples, four different things that have helped to cause the spiritual depression that he's experiencing. And the first one of these, we find in verse 3, in verse 10, in verse 1, and that's mistreatment by unbelievers. Mistreatment by unbelievers. Both verbal And physical. He says in verse 3, look at verse 3. My tears, he says, have been my food day and night. Does that sound like somebody who's enjoying life right now? If your tears have been your food day and night, that is a deep, deep sorrow. And he says, they've been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? They're attacking him verbally. They're looking at, we don't know the exact trial that he's going through. But he's going through something, and what's contributing to his spiritual depression is people yapping, and they're yapping at him. They're like, oh, really? Where's your God? Where's he in all of this? If your God was real, why would this be happening to you? This is such a big deal to him. Look at verse 10. He says, he says it again. He repeats it. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where's your God? This is really really impacting this man's soul. He's not inviting it. He doesn't want it. In fact, we grew up saying this to our kids, or it was said to us and we say it to our kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but what? Words will never hurt me. Psalm literally says the exact opposite. He says, as with deadly wound in my bones, literally their taunts are like people stabbing knives in my bones. So do words hurt us? Can words hurt us? Can words impact us? The answer is what? Yes. It's wearing him down. I know some dear saints in our church family who have family members that do not support <clears throat> their Christianity, who do not think highly of their faith in Jesus Christ. And they tell me that literally every family gathering that they go to, they can anticipate not just antagonism, but attacks. And they will often come, some of them in my small group, and they say, pray for me. I'm going into this situation it is just so emotionally draining to have your faith attacked time and time again. And for some of you, that that might be you. And the psalmist says, I resonate with that. Verbal attacks continue. Some of you have that in your jobs. Your job is the last place where you feel like you will be encouraged in your faith. Instead, every word that is spoken undercuts your beliefs and who you know your God to be. Listen, the psalmist is saying, "You, you take enough of that? You get enough of that, it can wear you down. And not only is the mistreatment being verbal, look at what verse 1 of chapter 43 says. He says, vindicate me, O God, and defend my case. And then he says, defend my case against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you what? Rejected me. Now, church, has God rejected him? Does God reject his people? What's the answer? No. But what does it feel like? It feels like he has. Make note of that, church, because it's letting us know sometimes what we feel is not what's actually true. And this is what he's coming and he's saying. I feel like you've rejected me. Why? Well, his answer is because... I've been treated unjustly. I've been treated unjustly. Nothing like warm tea, huh? On a hot day. (coughs) He comes and he says, I have been treated unjustly. This is why he feels like God's abandoned him, because our God that we serve and love is the God of justice. Is he not? And yet, the unjust people seem to be winning. And so he's saying, look at, from a logical standpoint, if you're a God of justice and yet unjust things are happening to me, and we don't know what it is, maybe it's business dealings. Maybe people are taking credit for his work. Maybe he's received the raw end of a financial deal. He says, God, if you're just, yet unjust people are winning, then are you even real? Do you see how this, this gets at him and it makes him feel like, God, you're, you're distant. You're not here. And then he comes and he tells us another reason, and it's the exact... Opposite, well, let's say it's on the opposite spectrum of this. He comes in verse 4, and he says, These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. I remember you from the land of Jordan, which is where he currently is, and of Hermon, and from Mount Miser. He's coming and he's saying something that's so significant. See, what's happened to this guy who used to lead the people of God in worship is that he's been unable to worship with the people of God for reasons that he doesn't explain. He has had the inability, he has been kept from worshiping God with the saints. And so he's saying, you want to know another cause of my spiritual depression? It's the inability to worship with God's people. I was the guy who who led people in festive throng, another translation says. I was the one who, see, in in Jerusalem, the temple was up on a hill, and there were these long steps that went all the way down to to one of the cleansing pools that the people would go to, and they would ritually purify themselves, and then they would march up the steps. I got to walk those steps when I went to Israel a number of years ago. And it's a long walk to Take care of the time. They would sing psalms all the way up. And so this was one of the guys who'd be playing instruments, leading people in singing. And he's saying, right now in my life, I'm being kept from that. I can't worship with God's people like I used to. And it's a burden to my soul. He's like, I'm way up in Jordan. I'm in the north. I'm not down in Jerusalem. I'm away from you. And I remember those times. And so he's drawing this into something, church. He's saying one of the sources of spiritual depression, one of the things that can make God feel distant is when you are unable to worship with God's people. The inability to gather with the saints. You see, you and I were made to worship. Like we know that God created us to worship Him, but you were not made to worship God by yourself. You and I were made to worship God in community. That's why we gather together. We start our whole worship service quoting from Hebrews that God has called us to gather as people to worship. And this psalmist is saying, like, here's the reason why. If you stay away from worship, if you are kept from that, it can weigh down on your soul. He says, I would love nothing more, nothing would help me more than to be gathered with the saints. We saw this in the last year and a half. When COVID hit and people weren't able to come and to gather For worship, you you can't have the experience of gathering with the saints by just watching something online. We all did our best in the seasons to do that for a brief time, but we realized that we got to get back together because because this is what God's people need. It can lead to spiritual depression. And here's something that I find so crazy. See, as a church, one of the things that we say that it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that you gather for corporate worship. And I feel a little bit bad about what I'm about to say because somebody came up to me after the service, and well, you'll understand in just a minute. But here's the thing. The psalmist says, you want to know something that causes spiritual depression? Not gathering with the saints for worship. So here's, here's just my simple brain. Why would we, who proclaim to be the people of God, ever intentionally not seek to gather for worship If God's word literally tells us that one of the things that will contribute and create spiritual depression is when you can't do so. See, he's being kept from it. He wants to, but he can't. We don't have that problem today. And and so, if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus and you don't gather corporately for worship, the Bible says there's only one of two reasons for that. Either one, you're misinformed and you have not yet learned what God's Word actually says about the importance of corporate worship, or two, you're just flat out living a life of disobedience. And now, I say that, I'm saying that to my church. There was a visitor here the first hour who said he hadn't been to like church in like a year and a half, and he said, thanks for that part of your message. And I was like, oh, sorry. But, like, but that's the deal. And so I, when I saw this this week, I was so convicted about the importance once again of, of coming and gathering as the people of God. Because to not do so, you are literally opening yourself up for what this psalmist is experiencing. But then two more things. I'm going to fly through this. The next two are this. Trials that never seem to end. Mistreatment of unbelievers can cause spiritual oppression, The inability to worship with God's people can cause it. But trials that never seem to end can also cause it. Verse 7, he lays it out. He says, deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. He's not describing a surfing experience here, okay? He is using the imagery of waves and breakers crashing over him to describe what his season of life has been like. One trial after another has come upon him, and it is literally overwhelming. He's saying, I've tried my best here, but I just can't overcome these never-ending trials. Some of you have experienced this. You have a physical illness, and then it leads to a financial struggle. Sometimes you have trials that are of a relational nature, one relationship after another seems to be falling apart. The psalmist says those never-ending trials, they can cause a spiritual depression. I was reminded, actually, one time when I attempted to surf. I enjoy surfing. I'm not a good surfer by any stretch. But I was out one day when I shouldn't have been, and as I was (laughs) surfing a wave that I thought I could catch, I couldn't catch it. And I fell down, and that wave crashed over me, and it drove me down. I was in a, uh, <clears throat> on, a, on a break that was at an exceptionally deep area, and it drove me down so deep. I'm a tall guy that I did three full somersaults and still hadn't touched the bottom. And my leash on my board went tight, and I'm like, trying to get to the top, swimming to the top. So when he's talking about feeling the waves breaking over him, in that moment, I so understood the power of the ocean no matter how good of a swimmer I was, trying to fight against a wave coming over me, there was nothing I could do. And the psalmist is saying, sometimes you'll have trials in your life that break upon you, and no matter how hard you swim, you just can't seem to get out of it. And so he says, if you're having one of those times, don't be surprised if your emotional capacity, your longing for God, you're you're feeling his presence in your life might be diminished. Are are you tracking with me? And finally, he says, it's not just simply that. When you're going through those trials, verse 9 says, well, look at this. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? He's asking God a question. He's saying, God... Not like, I feel like you forgot me. He actually says, God, why have you forgotten me? Like, that is really what he feels. It feels like truth to him. And and the reason why he's asking that question is because he's been petitioning God. He's been praying to God. He's been asking God to act. And God has not answered his prayers the way that the psalmist thinks. And sometimes, that's what it is for us. God not acting when and how we desire. That can lead to spiritual depression. It can make God feel distant. Like, God, if you really knew what was going on, if you were really listening to my prayers, you would be responding differently than what's going on right now. Like, why am I mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Why would I be oppressed if you care about me? I'm calling out to you, answer, God. And see, here's the thing with God, church. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. God always answers prayers, doesn't he? Just like I always answer my girls, but sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes the answer is no, and sometimes the answer is wait, not now. And if God is not answering one of your prayers today in the way that you want, it can begin to make you feel like maybe, maybe God's not real. Maybe God does not care. And the psalmist is saying, okay, take note of this. Don't abandon Your faith in these times, recognize it for what it is. This is a season of spiritual depression, and it's not because of anything you're failing to do. It's not because you've not studied the word hard enough. It's not because you've not prayed hard enough. He says sometimes outside forces come upon us. Do you have a category for it? The psalmist says, let me instruct you, you should. But he comes in this psalm, and he doesn't just simply say spiritual depression can come upon you. And he doesn't just simply come and say there's different causes for it. He ultimately gives us the cure for spiritual depression. He gives us the cure. This is the glorious part of this passage. He says, if you can identify a season of spiritual depression in your life, he says, let me give you hope. And he does something to make it abundantly clear that this is a cure. Three times in this passage, he says the exact same thing. Did you hear it? Three times in this passage, he says the exact same thing. And this repetition is used in the word of God like we use it with our children to communicate something important so that we don't miss it. What does he say? He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times he says it. He says in verse 5, verse 11, and then at the very end of chapter 43 in verse 5 once again. He gives us these words because what he's doing is he's showing us the cure, what our hearts need in order to weather the seasons of spiritual depression. He's coming like the guide on the raft and saying, okay, this is what can happen to you. Now let me prepare you. I'm telling you about these things and the causes so that you're not surprised, but that instead, when it does come, now let me tell you how you get through it, how you navigate this season, so that the waves and the breakers don't overwhelm you. And the first thing this verse tells us is that we need to acknowledge the reality of your situation. You will never be able to deal with your spiritual depression if you don't call it out. He asks himself the question, "'Why are you downcast, O my soul?' Why are you so disturbed within me? And he's not asking that rhetorically, like, you really don't have reason. You know, because he could ask it like this. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? I mean, really? Really, like, what do you have to complain about? Is that how he's using it? No. He's actually stopping and he's saying, there's reason for you to be downcast. You need to acknowledge that outside circumstances have come upon you and that what you're feeling is real. One of the greatest things, actually in a few weeks, Pastor Jason's going to preach on a psalm of lament. So I don't want to steal off his thunder, but I'm going to steal a little bit. All right. One of the things that's so important when you see someone who is struggling spiritually, where they feel God is distant, this psalm teaches us that you just don't go up to them and say, buck up. Come on. Why Why are you feeling that way? The psalmist says, No. Acknowledge the hurt. Acknowledge the sorrow. One of the greatest things I've learned in counseling people is they'll come into my office and they'll just feel like they're distant from God. They're really struggling in their faith. And then I talk to them about what it is that's happening in their life. And so often, the most helpful thing that I'll ever say to a person in a counseling session is, if I were you, I would feel that way too. But what you're feeling ultimately isn't what is to lead and guide you, but to deny the fact that if you're kept from worshiping God, if you're being mistreated by unbelievers, if if you're being dealt with unjustly, to think that that wouldn't impact your soul, you're not recognizing that you're human and that you live in a fallen world. Are you following with me on this? So we have to acknowledge the reality of the situation because when we do that, and only when we do that, then we can come to the next part. He doesn't pretend that he shouldn't be feeling the way that he feels. But then he comes and he says, why are you downcast on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And then he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Church, this is life-changing what he says here. He shows us that when we begin to feel the dryness, when we begin to feel the distance from God, The thing that we must not do is keep listening to ourselves. We must talk to ourselves. Do you know what I mean when I say that? See, to listen to yourself is to listen to the fact of, God, I don't feel like you're my refuge. I I don't feel like you're with me. I feel like you're distant. It's listening to your feelings. And the psalmist says, okay, at some point you have to stop that. Just because I feel a way doesn't mean that that's the way things are. And so the very first thing that he says is hope in God. Church, we're smart people. I know you're smart people. Why does he tell himself hope in God? Why would he have to tell himself to hope in God? The answer is because he's being tempted to hope in something other than God. It's just that simple. He's saying the temptation right now when you're in a season of spiritual depression is to hope in other things. Hope that the people will stop verbally abusing you. Hope that you'll finally find justice. Hope that the trial will end. And so so your hope becomes in those things. And, And if your hope is in those things and your situation ever changes, then ultimately you will come under the waves and you won't make it. And he's saying, don't put your hope in those things being resolved. Put your hope in God. And what is biblical hope? See biblical hope is very simply this. Biblical hope is having confident expectation in who God is and what he will do. It's a confident expectation. It's not a, mm, "I hope God will do this." I hope he can do this. It's a, no, God, this is who I know you to be. This is what I know your promises to be, and you will be there, and you'll be there in two ways for me because you've been there in two ways for me in the past, and he acknowledges both of those. He acknowledges God as his salvation and as his sustainer. So you see, that's what it means to fix our hope. How do we hope in God? How do we not succumb to a season of spiritual depression so that it completely overtakes us? The psalmist says, fix your hope. Fix your hope in God. And in order to do that, you must talk to yourself and not just listen to yourself. You must proclaim to yourself how God saved you. He says, God, you're my salvation. Why do I have confident expectation in you and not the resolve of these situations? Because you've saved me. You are the God who saves. Do we not know him, church, as the God who saves us? Do we not know the mighty power of God in delivering you and I from the domain of darkness and rescuing us from our sins through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior? Why do we hope in Him? Why do we trust in Him? It's because He's the God who saves. We must proclaim to ourselves the salvation that He has brought to us. You see, if we listen to ourselves, we can keep spiraling. It can feel like you're not a refuge. It can feel like, God, you can never get me out of this. And yet, the psalmist comes and says, but God has saved. He's not left you. He has delivered you once. He will do it again. Not necessarily in the way that you desire, but there's an ultimate deliverance for the people of God. So Paul says, when he considers these things, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave, gave him up for us all. How will we not know the salvation that comes through him? Church, if you know God has saved, you proclaim that. In your season of spiritual depression, I'm not asking you to change your feelings. I'm asking you just to not keep listening like the psalmist does, but start proclaiming, here's what I know to be true about God. He saves and he sustains. You say, where do you see that? I say, I made it up. No, it's right there. He calls him my savior, my salvation, and my God. Do you know that in Israel, at this time, there were lots of other gods? I mean, there were these foreign gods that the people of Israel were always, always being tempted to follow. And when they would give up worship of Yahweh God, and and they would go after foreign gods, what they were saying is like, I need this God to sustain me. We're going to make a sacrifice to this God so that the crops will grow for The psalmist to say that God is his God is to say, no, no, you're my sustainer. You're the one that I am putting all my chips in. I've seen you sustain in the past. You're gonna do it in the future. Church, does God sustain us? Has he shown himself faithful? The answer to these questions is yes and yes. It's why we gather for worship, to proclaim over and over to our hearts, God saves, God sustains, Because whether you're in it now or you have been in the past, there's a good chance you will be in the future in a season of spiritual depression. And God's word comes to you like that whitewater rafting guy did to me and said, do you know it can come? And if it does, do you know how you will be pulled through? It'll be by putting your hope in God, proclaiming who he is in saving you, proclaiming the way that he has sustained you, And in those moments, when that spiritual depression comes, that is ultimately what will get you through. Praise God for his word. Praise God that he opens us up to these things. And may we be a church that so understands us that when we see others going through it, that we are there to help and to come alongside and to not just say there's something wrong with you. Buck up and get over it. But let me walk through it with you as we look to put our hope in God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, we acknowledge you as the God who is, well, the God of this psalm, the God who saves, the God who sustains. Lord, we are going to be so tempted, even this week, to allow circumstances and words and situations to make it feel and seem as though you're not there. Lord, some might even be in that this morning. Lord, help us to continue to proclaim the word that you've given so that our hope would not rest in the change of the circumstances or the trial, but that our hope would remain in you. And so we pray and we ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen.